congratulations to Mark and Gemma and Orla, baby number three today. Um, to Laura and Gage um, and Goa. Goa in India. So do that. And it's great to, to uh, welcome back Evan Thierry. Evan Thierry has been away. Working in Rwanda. And uh, it is, you're very welcome to your, your, your So today we, we start a mini uh, series that we just run over the next three weeks called Miracles of Christmas. We're just looking at some of the some of the things that have come to being because of Christmas, some of the some of the miracles that have happened in this story. And today we're going to look particularly at a passage in the Bible from Isaiah, Isaiah chapter 9, verses 1 to 7. Um, and we'll focus a little bit on it talks about peace today. Next week at the family service, we'll just do a brief look at joy. And then the final week, uh, Dan Fram will be speaking and we'll be looking at gifts. Um, but it would be uh, it would be a bit odd if I allowed today to go past without making any comment on um, the other news we heard this week about, about Nelson Mandela um, passing away on Thursday, um, and really to some degree the, the, the fever that has sort of caught the world since that moment. The man was 95, so he was going to die, you know, at some point soon. Um, back in the summer, they, there was rumours that he had died, he hadn't died. So, um, and it's really unusual, if you think about it, for somebody to be, to be so universally loved. Yeah? People were often loved and respected, but this guy, I mean, if you... If you were to go onto the BBC website I went on there today, you could spend ages just looking at the tributes, the, the things that people have said about him. That um, the president of South Africa, Jacob Zuma, said, um, "Africa, South Africa, has lost its greatest son. Its greatest son." And uh, uh, Barack Obama, the president of the U.S., he said, "We've lost one of the most influential, courageous." and profoundly good human beings that any of us will share time with on this earth. These are major tributes uh, to a man. There's not every generation that has a man like Mandela uh, to sort of walk through. Uh, Obama goes on to say, his journey from a prisoner to a president embodies the promise that human beings and countries can change for the better. Vladimir Putin, the, the Russian president, uh, said Mandela um, uh, sort of was committed to the very end of his days to the ideals of humanism and justice. The Chinese president talked about the China-South Africa relationship and that Mandela contributed to the progress of mankind. Yeah? But these people don't say this about everybody. They're not going to say this about everybody. Yeah? There's not going to be a point where all these... Oh, I mean, who is dying? I'm okay. <laughs> That's not going to happen. Yeah? The French uh, president talked about uh, Mandela continuing to inspire fighters for freedom and to give confidence to people in the defense of justice. Angela Merkel, the Germany's chancellor, talked about Mandela's political legacy of non-violence and the condemnation of all forms of racism. Even the, the president of Syria, and remember that Syria in the middle of the civil war, 
when the president of Syria found a moment, <laughs> found a moment to talk about Mandela's life as an inspiration for freedom fighters and a lesson to pagans. And Ghana's president says this, which really gives summary. Mr. Mandela was the greatest African who ever lived. So people have really, they've really sort of gone, gone for this. They've gone for the Mandela thing. And I was just thinking about this. There's no doubt we all have, and we all got, got caught up. And, you know, um, there are many places and people that Mandela has seen. Mandela actually visited Brixton. Um, he was at the Brixton Rec uh, in 1995, I think it was, 1996. Um, and, you know, there aren't many places in the UK that he went and he just engaged with the people, but this was one of them. This was one of those uh, places. I, I had the privilege of going to South Africa in, in 2004 and went to Robben Island and went into the cell that Angela had occupied uh, for that period of time. So, um, uh, it's quite something, what, what's happened. And it will be one of those, oh, where were you when you heard? Yeah, it will be one of those moments. And I've just been thinking about this, reflecting on it, um, as, I, as I do from time to time. Well, I reflect all the time, to be honest, but reflecting <laughs> particularly on this. And, and I was thinking about this. If we were to be visited, if this world were to be visited from... Uh, by aliens from out of space. Yeah? And we knew the visit was going to happen. We knew that there were some people from another galaxy, they were going to come to Earth, and they were going to meet people, and we had to choose a delegation of people to represent the very, very best of humanity. The very best. And maybe the way that we would choose that delegation wouldn't be by some people in a little room deciding who do we think that is, but it might have been that the whole of the world would get a vote on some sort of social media site and everyone would say, okay, who, who represents the very, very best of humanity? I imagine that millions, if not billions of people, would vote for Mandela. Oh, he would be one of them. He'd be one of the guys that represents the very best of humanity, particularly the last hundred years, the very best that we can offer, that we can bring. Maybe among those, although it's so often the case that after people die, you, you know, their, their memory dims a little bit. You, know, you can try hard, but their memory dims. Mother Teresa would be there. Maybe Mahatma Gandhi would be there. People who you'd think, okay, these represent the very best of what we are able to offer. I wouldn't be there. Maybe one of you. I'm not sure anyone here would be there, maybe. I'm not sure David Cameron would be there. I'm not sure there'd be enough people that would say, yeah, I'm going to vote for David. Yeah. He represents the very best of humanity. Why? Why would he be there? Why would he be there? No, no one would probably met him. I've not met him. Yeah, he's, he's, a, he's an old South African. Why, why would he? He's from a tribe. Yeah, he was part of a political party that many of us wouldn't have really loved. Why Mandela? In many ways, it's not about what they achieved. I mean, Mandela, he was president for one term in South Africa. If you know anything of the history, you also know that Mandela could not have achieved what he achieved had F.W. de Klerk not been prepared to give up power. 
It wasn't just about Mandela. There were other people that enabled him. It wasn't just about what he achieved. It was partly about, though, the way he achieved it. It was partly the way he achieved it. You see, Mandela, Mother Teresa and Gandhi, they all operated against the odds. They all operated under great stress, with great opposition. In fact, Gandhi, these words are attributed to Gandhi. I love this. I don't remember this when I said it. Gandhi said this in his fight for the, the freeing of, of uh, first of all, Indians in South Africa and then Indians in, um, in, in India and his use of non-violence and, and, and in his battle for that, he said this. First, they ignore you. Then, they laugh at you. Then, they fight you. Then, you win. <laughs> they ignore you, they laugh at you, they fight you, then you win. It's almost like if you do something and you're on the side of what is right, in the end you'll win. In the end. Basically what he was saying. And so it was partly what they went for, you know, under great stress, great opposition. Remember, each one of those people at one point in their lives would have been seen as the bad guy. The bad guy. Mandela definitely would have been seen as the bad guy. But it wasn't even just that. The thing about Mandela, and I remember this because I remember when he was released, I'm old enough to remember, Pauline and I had gone to church, and we went back to some friend's house, and we watched on telly his release. The thing about Mandela is this. It was the grace. It was the forgiveness. It was the fact that when he came out of prison, after 27 years, having every right and reason to be vengeful and bitter and resentful, he wasn't. He wasn't. And he didn't just, so, so he spoke of grace, he spoke out of grace, he spoke of forgiveness, and he spoke of reconciliation. And it was obvious when you heard him speak that it wasn't he thought, oh, this is the political way to get things done. Something had gone on in here. It was obvious, just the way that he spoke. And then the things that he did. It's really bizarre, isn't it? Because we've just been doing weeks on Joseph, and if ever there was a modern-day Joseph, it was Mandela. Not just because he went from prisoner to president, but when he became president, he functioned with grace. Functioned with forgiveness and openness. And he seemed to do what we all desire to do, and the Bible encourages us to do, but we find it so hard to do, and that is this love your enemies and do good to those who persecute you. That's what the Bible says. That's what Jesus said. And yet, in Mandela, we find something that he did that. Basically, he just did that. And we hold him in universal regard because we would all like to be able to do that and somehow we all seem to fall a little bit short. We all struggle. So we, so we hold him up there. He would be among those people. But I couldn't help but wonder whether all this adulation, appreciation, and I have it, yeah? 
I've read the book, I'm going to freedom, I will see that uh, I, I have all of that. There's all this confirmation and love of humanity and humanism. I couldn't help but wonder, is that really the way forward? Is it really the way forward? You see, I found it interesting that not one of those most powerful men and women in the world even acknowledged God in their reflections. It was as though we believe human beings in this day and age, because of all that we've achieved, it's as though we believe that in ourselves is the answer. That if we strive enough, you know, um, Obama talks about what Mandela showed us is what happens when a human being is driven by his hopes and not his fears. So if we strive enough, if we do enough, we can make it. We can make a difference. We can make the world a better place. That's what, that's what all of these leaders seem to be suggesting. And that Mandela epitomised that for all of us. Someone who strived enough against all the odds continue to believe, and as a result, this is what happened. <coughs> Mandela himself said this, I'm not a saint, unless a saint is a sinner who keeps on trying. I'm not a saint, unless a saint is a sinner who keeps on trying. I want you to respond. It's not bad. But I want you to respond and say, actually, a saint isn't a sinner who keeps on trying, Martin. A saint is a sinner who realizes trying isn't good enough. Trying isn't good enough. And actually what you need to do is you need to learn to trust. There's someone that you need to trust. That's what, a, that's what a saint is. A saint isn't somebody who tries hard. A saint is somebody who recognises even my hardest and even my best isn't good enough. I need to trust. I need to trust. And it was interesting because the Mandela story came up, or the, the Mandela situation came up, whilst I was reflecting on what to preach this morning. And I couldn't help but be struck by the passage that I was led to speak on, which speaks about, because in some ways, some people look on Mandela, not saying we do, with huge esteem and respect for him, but some people look on Mandela almost as a bit of a saviour who made the world right. Some people will think that. He inaugurated a kingdom a different kingdom to the one that we've been before. And I couldn't help but be struck by the inauguration of another kingdom. And another Messiah, another Savior, whose kingdom was foretold thousands of years before it began. But his power and influence has only ever increased since his death. Never decreased. And it was promised that that would be the case. That his kingdom continues to grow and transform lives and communities the world over. And for which we're building a church in Brixton. We're committed to establishing his kingdom. And so I want to read these words in the light of what I've just said about 
Mandela, as I and my assistants. Nevertheless, there will be no more gloom for those who were in distress. In the past, he, humbled the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali, but in the future he will honour Galilee of the nations by the way of the sea, beyond the Jordan. The people walking in darkness have seen a great light. On those living in the land of deep darkness, a light has dawned. You have enlarged the nation and increased their joy. They rejoice before you as people rejoice at the harvest, as warriors rejoice when dividing the plunder. For as in the day of Midian's defeat, you have shattered the yoke that burdens them, the bar across their shoulders, the rod of their oppressor. Every warrior's boot used in battle and every garment rolled in blood will be destined for burning, will be fuel for the fire. For to us, a child is born. To us, a son is given, and the government will be on his shoulders, and he will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase or greatness of his government and peace, there will be no end. He will reign on David's throne and over his kingdom, establishing and upholding it with justice and righteousness from that time on and forever. The zeal of the Lord Almighty will accomplish this. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for being with us today. And we do thank you, Father, for the light and the reminder of Nelson Mandela. Well, we don't know him, but no doubt all of us, to some degree, have been inspired and provoked and touched by his way, his life, what he achieved, what he did. And so, Father, I pray that that, will, that provocation will lead us to look to the true Savior, the one in whom inspiration it's not just about inspiration, but it's about the transformation of life and the difference that Jesus has made to us. We pray this in your name. Amen. Just a very little bit of background. Isaiah was a prophet who um, lived you know, a couple of thousand years, I think, before, before Jesus uh, was born. And he, he lives during the period of the kings, where Israel is being led by different kings. And there's one king in which Isaiah 9 gets written in the context of um, who he's living around, and this king is called Ahaz. And what it says of Ahaz was he was 20 years old when he became king, and he reigned in Jerusalem for 16 years. And it says this of him, Unlike David his father, he did not do what was right in the eyes of the Lord his God. He followed the ways of the kings of Israel, and even sacrificed his son in the fire, engaging in the detestable practices of the nations the Lord had driven out before the Israelites. He offered sacrifices of burning sins. And then there's a point where Ahaz sent messengers to the king of Assyria. And he says to the king of Assyria, I am your servant and vassal. Come and save me out of the hand of the king of Aram and the king of Israel, who are attacking me. And he took silver and gold, founded the temple of the Lord, and in the treasuries of the royal palace, and he sent it as a gift to the king of Assyria. So this is the context in which that passage 
was written. So you've got this king of Israel, Ahaz, or king of, king of Judah at that time. There were two kingdoms, I won't go into all the details, Judah and Israel, Israel king of Judah. And the world is not a great place. The people around practice, uh, they, they practice child sacrifice, they do all sorts of other things, they worship all sorts of gods. And Israel and Judah had got caught up in all of that. They'd got caught up in all that was going on in the world around them. So even though there were prophets, people like Isaiah speaking in, they got caught up in all this type of stuff. And so Ahaz, that Isaiah had said to Ahaz, look, don't worry about these guys attacking you. They're not, they're not going to win in the end. They're not going to win. But Ahaz, rather than relying and trusting on, on the prophet and what God had said to him, goes to another saint goes to the superpower of his generation, the king of Assyria, he says, look, I'll, I'll, I'll give you stuff, you can come and help me, come and help me. And so he takes things out of the, the temple, the temple of God, he takes it to um, a, a place where he meets um, uh, the king of Assyria, and he hands it to him, and he begins to worship him, and he begins to rely on him. And he had been told, look, if you do that, that will not help him. That won't help the people of God who start looking at It won't help. But that's what he does. He ignored the ways of God. He ignored the words of the prophet. And he appealed to Assyria for help. Israel and later Judah are then defeated. And they're wiped out. And when I read that passage up front about, um, uh, about the land that's in distress and the land of Zebulun being humbled, what happened was Assyria came down and they completely wiped out the northern part of Israel. Completely wiped out around the Galilee areas. They looked to them, as Ahab looked to them, as, their, as his saviour. And I just thought about that, and I realised that sometimes the people of God, the believers, the church, the Christians, can and be under pressure just to compromise and join in the ways of the world around Because, actually, you can almost be in a place where you think, oh, that just seems to be the norm. It seems to be the norm to function like that, to do those things, to look for help in this way. It just seems to be normal. And we even then interpret our own faith according to the culture. Sometimes we can do that. We can feel a pressure to do that. Sometimes we can rely on human ingenuity and our own strength rather than God to get us out of the situation. Sometimes we can do that. Because human ingenuity is very powerful. And we can almost think to ourselves, the logic goes, well, God surely wouldn't give us all this ability if he meant us just to look to him all the time. Surely he gave us all this ability in order that we can look to ourselves. And yet we're reminded, aren't we, of the story in Genesis 11 in the Tower of Babel where the human ingenuity said, let's build a tower towards God and through doing this we can make a name for ourselves. And God says, I'm going to destroy that tower. I'm going to scatter you as judgment because pride has welled up in your heart. It's very, very difficult for a, for a person to achieve much and not get proud. It's very difficult. Particularly if what you achieve is commended by others. If other people commend you, if you do well and, they, and you, something happens and you do well, people then commend you. It's very difficult for people not to turn their achievements into a program that other people can follow. So I do something really good and I, I, I do it in such a way that you can then take that idea and copy it. 
That's not how life works. But that is often how we live. It's very difficult not to get there without becoming proud. Yeah? And the only way you do that is if, is if you've been humbled in some way. Now the truth is, I don't know, just going back to Mandela for a moment, I don't know whether Nelson Mandela was a Christian. I don't know. Yet, I, I would argue this. What he did and the way he responded was definitely Christian. And it was almost like, I don't know whether you could do that if God didn't help you. I just don't know that you could. Because natural humanity does not respond in that way. He may not have been Christian in the way that I like to understand it, but there was something about how he responded. And so here Ahaz, he doesn't even bother trying. He just goes, I'm looking to Assyria to help because I need help. And sometimes we can do that. And we live at a time, don't we, where there's a little bit more pressure on being a Christian. There's a little bit more pressure on what we believe. There's a little bit more pressure and a little bit more... Um, opportunity to do other stuff and it all looks very much okay. But even with all our ingenuity, even with all our cleverness and our passion, all, the, all that stuff, there must come a point where we look to God rather than ourselves. Because if we do not do that, we respond out of pride, we do. And we respond out of our own stuff. Our own hurt, our own pain. And that becomes disastrous. But in this passage, it does talk about hope has come. And that hope is not in the form that you might have imagined. That hope comes in the form of a child. And it actually talks about a child is born, a son is given. And at one level, that just talks about the vulnerability of the hope. The hope that came, came in the form of a child. It didn't come in the form of this great ruler. It comes in the form of a child. The inauguration of a new kingdom came in the form of a baby who became something. And then it describes him as becoming wonderful counsellor, which is like he becomes a wise judge. He becomes someone who administers justice in a wise way, in a graceful way. He becomes, it calls him, the mighty God. Now that's a little bit of a hint for us that the one who is the ultimate saviour of the world is not quite like you and me. There is something divine about him. Because for all the way we talk about Mandela and other people, no one's going to call him God. No one. No one's going to say he is mighty God. Because we know he's not mighty God. But this saviour is called mighty God. It tells us of his divine power. He's mighty and he's God. He's divine. Thirdly, it calls him the everlasting father. The father who never ends. He's always there. And what does a father do? A father protects. A father is present. A father provides. So this one who would come is a wise judge. He has divine power. He protects. He provides. He's present. And then fourthly, it says, he's the prince of peace, which talks about the kind of ruler that he is. That he is royal. He is royal, but he's royalty and he's coming and bringing peace. The type of kingdom that he rules is a peaceful kingdom. <clears throat> it's a different kingdom. It's not the type of kingdom that we are used to. 
It's not the kind of peace. It talks about of the increase of his government, his governance, his ruling and peace. There will be no end. Now it's interesting when you look at that, because we now live almost as many years after the Saviour was born as Isaiah lived before the Saviour was born, if not more. And you can still say, oh, his government and peace is still going on. The increase is still going on. It's everlasting. Thousands of years later, more people worship Jesus now than worship him when he was born, than worship him when he died. That will not happen to Mandela. Mandela was a man for our time. And he did an amazing job in our time. But in 50 years, people will not look at Mandela like they look at him now. And many people will be born and die who don't even know who he is. That is not the case for Jesus. And it's not because the church has some sort of strategic plan to keep Jesus out. It doesn't happen like that. When it talks about peace, in Hebrew, in the Old Testament, that word shalom, it means more than just tranquility. When we think about peace, we think of a meadow and it's peaceful. A meadow full of flowers and stuff, but you go to a meadow and it's peaceful. But when the Bible talks about peace in the Old Testament, it's more than that. It also means prosperity. It also means wholeness. It means well-being. It means welfare. It's not just about tranquility or security. Oh, yeah, we live in peace because there's no war around us, and we live peaceful lives because everything is just peaceful. That's not what the Bible means when it talks about peace. In the Old Testament, it means this idea of well-being, wholeness, that, that, that there's health, there's life, there's peace. That's what it's talking about. And that in the context of peaceful living, people prosper. And by prospering, I don't necessarily mean that you just spend lots of money, but life prospers. You're fruitful in what you do. And then in the New Testament, when it talks about peace, it's not even talking about that kind of peace. Neither is it going back to tranquility and security. In the New Testament, when it talks about peace, it talks about heart peace. So not only is your whole environment one that's at peace, but actually you are at peace. And you're at peace with God, you're at peace with yourself, and you're at peace with your brothers and your sisters. That's the kind of peace that Jesus came. It's the kind of peace that his kingdom inaugurated. It's heart peace. And that kind of peace cannot be won politically, and it cannot be won by any human. We can't do that. But God who came, the mighty God who came, brings that peace. The Bible tells us that we are justified through faith in God, and that we obtain peace through Jesus. <clears throat> and that is the state in which we stand, and it's our experience of those who've been reconciled to God through Jesus. That I have peace. I have peace with God. And peace with God basically means this. It means I'm no longer striving for the answer. You two famously sung that song, I've still not found what I'm looking for. One of the reasons that song's so popular is it just hits the nail on the head. Oh, we're all looking for something. I've still not found what I'm looking for. Actually, when you find when you find peace with God through Jesus, you have found it. You have found it. 
And therefore, you don't, you don't need to strive and struggle and try and make things happen in order that you can achieve the security that you want, the significance that you want, or anything else that you want. You recognize, oh, I found peace with God. This is what I was designed for, to be in relationship. That I needed a divine one. It wasn't enough for me to be able to do my stuff. I needed something a bit more. But also, you find peace with God, you begin to find peace with yourself. Because you recognize, oh, this is what I'm doing. Let me give you a really silly sporting example. Um, I won't relate it to any particular thing, but when I used to play football, we're kind of My best position was on my right side. And as I got older, I went from being like right wing to right wing to right back. And I felt most comfortable there, the most natural way I felt. Occasionally, I'd have to play on the left side, and whenever I played on the left side, I had to adjust in my head how I played. All the time, oh, it's not, it's not natural. I had to make that type of adjustment. When you find peace with yourself, you're just in the right place, you're just happy with yourself. You don't need to think, oh, I'm always having to adjust my life. So when you become Christian, although you can think to yourself, oh man, it's really alien to me being Christian. Because naturally, I would do. Actually, when you become Christian, when you actually get to know Jesus, when you come into that relationship, you find peace with yourself. That's part of what happens. And then it talks about peace with others. Yeah? And again, that peace with others is not the absence of trouble. It's not that when God comes suddenly, oh, you know, he, he sort of becomes, um, I mean, sometimes you get people who, um, they try and keep the peace. Yeah, you just try and keep the peace. So you're not necessarily trying to deal with anything, you're just trying to keep the peace. That's a very, that's very different from what the Bible talks about peacemaking. A peacemaker is someone who brings peace. Where there is struggle and strife and enmity and hostility, Jesus brought peace. And Jesus won that peace on the cross. We needed a saviour. We weren't enough. It wasn't enough for us to be human and to do this stuff. We needed a saviour. Peace on earth emanates from the peace that dwells in our hearts through faith. And we need to know that. We need to get that. If you're Christian, if you're looking at Christianity, you need to know that. That's what Christianity does. Peace with God, peace with peace with others. Peace leads to gospel expansion. It leads to gospel extension. If I'm not at peace with myself, I will not in any way be, be, be uh, establishing the kingdom because I'll be too busy worrying about myself. The peace that God brings is lasting peace, which is why 2,000 years later people still worship Jesus. If Jesus did not bring lasting peace, we would not still be worshiping him. He would have, he would have passed through the annals of history like everybody Peace is the most conspicuous blessing of the kingdom of God. Peace in your life should be the most conspicuous blessing of the kingdom of God. It's about putting back together that which has been divided. It's about sorting hostilities so that you have things in the right place. It's about restoring wholeness. You see, in the end, the saviour of the world couldn't just be human. 
That wasn't enough. People who represent the best of humanity cannot bring the peace that is offered, that is needed. It couldn't just be human. There's always a limit. And the problem is when we think there is no limit, and we think humanity can do. We can't do. We can't do. We weren't created to do it. So whilst I have huge respect, obviously huge respect for Mandela, this is not about Mandela, this is about our response to him. For the Christian, this is the gospel at stake. This is the message that's at stake. If we take hold of what's being said, the way our world is functioning, the way our world is responding, we could easily come to the conclusion that if we try hard enough, we can do it. If we trust ourselves enough, if we follow our hopes and not our fears, we can do it. And that's not the gospel. That's the opposite of the gospel. The gospel is a recognition that I can't, I can't do enough. I recognize that. I am a sinner. As I said, Mandela said those words, I'm, I'm no saint, and that's a saint is someone who, who's a sinner who keeps on trying. There's this recognition. You know, he knows, and probably one of the things that again attracts people to him is the fact that he's not coming out like he's Mr. Savior. Because he knows he's not Mr. Savior. He's not unaware of his own weaknesses. <coughs> so the whole gospel is at stake. Do we believe in the power of humanity and human ingenuity and humanism to make a difference in the world, to make the difference in the world? Or do we believe that God sent a saviour to start a new kingdom? And it's that kingdom that we are seeking to establish. And we're not relying on our own efforts, but we're relying on his efforts. And his alone. Is that where we sit? Because if we be Christian, that's where we need to sit. Otherwise we're living inconsistent with what we actually believe. Mandela was a great man. Yeah, he, he was. He was a great man. But he was just a man. And it's in his death and the review of his life and his achievements that we can even more clearly see who the real Savior is. We need to acknowledge these dangers of trusting in ourselves or in others to set us free. So we're going to respond now. We're going to finish there. Then in the band, if you want to just come up. And I'll just <coughs> a couple of questions before I hand back to, to others. And the first question is this. Have you made your peace with God? Have you made your peace with God? Have you come to that place where you recognize, you know what? I'm a very clever person, but I can't seem to make my life work. I've got I've actually got lots of abilities, but I still seem to have this emptiness. Have you made your peace with God? Have you recognized that you need to come to Jesus, the Messiah who was prophesied and promised in this place, who came to birth, who came to life? If you make your peace with God, it will lead you to peace with yourself. And that will help you find peace with others. 
For those of you who you've already there, you, you know you've made your peace with God. Our danger, I suppose a bit like Ahaz the king, who was, who was the king of the chosen people of Israel, our danger is occasionally like Ahaz. We can feel the pressure. We can feel the pressure of what comes on us from the outside. And we can look for salvation in other places. We can, like Ahaz, go, oh, let me look to him. He's the superpower. Let me look there. Oh, that person, oh, that idea. Let me look there. We sang earlier that wonderful song before the throne of God above. And in the second verse it says, When Satan tempts me to despair and tells me of the guilt within, up did I look him. I was just reflecting on that earlier. I just thought, oh, here's the answer to temptation. The answer to temptation and, and the feelings that we can sometimes get when we feel like we, have no, we can't do anything for ourselves and, and we get tempted to the point of despair. Here's the answer to temptation. Look up. Look up. Look up and see him. Because, because in the end, he's the one that made an end to all your sin. It wasn't that you tried really hard and that you made it. When you're tempted to despair, look up and see him. And maybe, maybe you've made your peace with God. Maybe you're a believer, but maybe you're where Ahaz is and you're struggling and you're, the pressure, the pressure's coming. Look up. If you haven't yet made your peace with God, you know what? This morning is an opportunity to do that.